Udi. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. To any of our regular listeners, you might have noticed that we've had a few weeks break over the last month or so. I've been in Spain for six weeks and also I've been on holiday, I have to say. There's been a bit of holidaying, but there's been a lot of working as well because I've been busy working on two wonderful new podcast series. The first is the India Hicks podcast. It's with India Hicks and Lady Pamela Hicks. Lady Pamela is the 90-year-old daughter of Lord Mountbatten, who was Prince Charles's uncle and great advisor, and also uncle to Prince Philip, and also a relative of the Queen, very close to the royal family. I'm sure most of you have heard of him. And it, I have to say, it's been at times a, a spine-tingling privilege to to sit having tea and cake in Lady Pamela's drawing room with her and her lovely daughter, India Hicks, in Oxfordshire, and listen firsthand to the stories of her famous family, of royals, lords and ladies, Serena's sars, and more, the very famous people that visited the Mountbattens, you know, from Wallace Simpson to Noel Coward and all these glittering characters who are now actually consigned to, to history. Lady Pamela was the Queen's bridesmaid when she got married. Actually, it was Princess Elizabeth. She was Princess Elizabeth's bridesmaid when she got married because she wasn't yet the Queen. But she was actually also on the famous Commonwealth tour when Princess Elizabeth did find out she was going to be Queen. She was there that moment. Indeed, this week's podcast tells of the very point moment at treetops in Kenya. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story where Princess Elizabeth is told that sadly her father has passed away, the king, and she now will be queen. Lady Pamela was there to witness that. And the story is really, really incredible. Elizabeth was only 25, a very young princess, and had to fly home. And Lady Pamela tells us all about this poignant journey she had and almost the change that was almost visible, she says, in her um, knowing that her life was going to change forever. So the other podcast I've released in this time, the podcast series, I'm incredibly excited to say, is a podcast series with the veritable legend of a BBC foreign correspondent, John Simpson. John actually came on the big travel podcast not so long ago. If you haven't heard that episode, do have a listen. He enjoyed it so much, he decided to make his own series with me. And I'm overjoyed that he chose to do it with me. He could have gone to the BBC, where he's been working for over 53 years. But actually, he chose to do it independently and for the first season it was meant to be an interview based podcast but due to various logistics for the first season it's just John and I talking about current events and affairs and some fascinating uh, insights he has you know he's traveled the world for 53 years as a foreign correspondent he's met 
Putin, Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi, and all these, we know, all these very, very historical events. And we're covering all sorts of subjects on the podcast on the first season and busy lining up a, a stellar range of guests, I would say, some very famous people for season two. So do give that a listen, the India Hicks podcast and also John Simpson's World. So it's been very busy while I've been in Spain, but here we are back with a new big travel podcast and some amazing guests lined up for the foreseeable future starting here with, would you believe it, a NASA astronaut. NASA astronaut John Harrington became the first ever Native American to travel to space during a historic mission to the International Space Station. He lives in the Idaho wilderness, flies his own plane, has cycled over 4,000 miles cross-country from Washington to Florida, and for his most recent adventure is one of two U.S. trailblazers exploring America in an incredible film called Into America's Wild. His inspirational stories have landed him a very well-suited role as a motivational speaker and he's here now to motivate and inspire us all let's start with space what does it feel like oh boy it's a it's a hard question to answer because there's so many aspects to it the launch is real exciting it takes eight and a half minutes to get to orbit you go from zero to 17,500 miles an hour or 28,000 i think kilometers per hour in eight and a half minutes and you get up uh you start floating. Everything around you is floating. You're floating. You have to hang on. You're not used to hanging on and to stay in one place. So it takes a little, to, a little bit to get used to. Are you scared? No, I wasn't scared. I think, I think you realize if you're worried about all the things that could go wrong, then you probably shouldn't be there because <laughs> a lot of things can go wrong. Can a lot of things go wrong? I yeah. mean, I know about the, the technology must be brilliant. The top, technology blows my mind. I don't understand how they can get you into space. I, I still don't understand flying, really. Sure. Well, space, the space shuttle is an extremely complex vehicle. It was an extremely complex. It's in museums now. But, uh, you know, so many things can go wrong. And so for a long time, we take, uh, uh, we're in simulators, and we constantly simulate all the bad stuff that could happen. And our job is to respond to the bad stuff. And so when you fly and bad stuff doesn't happen, you're like, whew, that's good. I made it. Yay. What's that moment like when you take off? Because it looks and sounds so incredible and loud. Well, the noise is behind you. Once you start going is past the speed of sound, you're, you, know, you don't really hear it. You hear the radios. You hear the chatter on the radios. You hear um, a lot of vib- there's a lot of vibration. And it's really bumpy for about two minutes. And then when the solids, you have these two big rocket engines on the outside that are solid rocket engines. And so they burn really violently and uh, makes it really kind of bumpy. And after two minutes, they fall away, and it gets to be very smooth. So you're on three main engines that push you the rest of the way to space. And then it feels like people uh, describe it as an electric train ride. Is David Bowie's uh, space, space Odyssey, Odyssey going through your mind? Oh, no, that's Chris Hadfield. He's a Canadian that sang that when he was on the space station, but no. Actually, I took uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey. I took the soundtrack to that when I went to space. You know, I think this is a very important question, and actually my music question is, it reminds me of almost already answered it, but it's always a question I ask at the end. But on the way it, to meet you, you know, David Bowie's Space Odyssey was going round in my head, and I'm thinking of all those things that can go wrong. You can actually... You know, you can be you can be forgotten. You sure. wouldn't be forgotten, but you could be lost. You could be lost in space. Well, one of the guys, uh, you know, Tom Stafford, General Tom Stafford from Oklahoma, where I'm from, Major Tom, you know, uh-huh. and that, and uh, and so when Chris Hadfield sang it and made that connection, you know, the people want to see the natural, the human aspect of flying in space, and when Chris sang that song, then it kind of made the connection. 
So you, you were heading for the International Space mm-hmm. Station, which is, as far as I'm aware, as large as a football field yep. and is flying around us even as we speak. Right. It's been in space. It launched... Uh, the first humans went on board the space station in November of 2000. So we've been in space, you know, 19 years, since almost 19 years. I mean, it's always been somebody on board. I think pretty soon there'll be nine people on board. I usually said six. But it orbits the Earth every 90 minutes. And, you know, there's an app on your phone. You can actually see when it comes over. And you can watch it. It's the brightest star in the sky in the early morning and the early evening. My brother has this app, and I've oh, seen yeah. it. And I haven't I downloaded the app, the app. The app looks great. I'm, I don't know why. I keep thinking of downloading the app and watching it go over, and I have seen it. And mm-hmm. it, it's very different movement to, say, a shooting star when you actually see it. You can, oh, it just you moves can across the sky really fast. There's no blinking lights. It's just a reflection of the sunlight on the structure. And so if you see it in the evening, it eventually passes into darkness, and, and, you know, through what we call the Terminator, and it'll, it'll disappear. How does it even get up there? Or has it been built up there slowly, it's been built. a bit like Lego? Yeah, 16 different countries have been involved in the manufacture and assembly. And so the space shuttle was a truck, essentially, and it carried up a large number of the elements to the space station. The Russians also launched a lot. Uh, the Europeans have a module they send up, no module, but a, um, a transfer vehicle that goes up as well. The Japanese do the same. SpaceX is doing the same as well. So, yeah. And uh, I think Orbital, ATK, so those commercial entities that are actually flying payloads up to space. So how do you get attached to it? How do you get on? There you are hurtling through the sky at whatever speed. What speed are you going on? 17,500. So I've got to do my metric here. Um, Yeah, you've got to be exactly. Yeah, about 20, 20, I think it's about 28,000 kilometers per hour, I think. So I've got to go back and do the math. So you're hurtling through the sky towards space. Well, you go up in, the idea is you don't launch straight up. You launch, you go around the Earth. Because when the engines quit, you're not accelerating anymore. And so gravity is pulling you back to Earth. Well, Earth is round. It's not flat. And uh, you fall back to Earth, but you're going so fast that the Earth falls away at the same rate. So you're in this constant free fall around the Earth. To get to the space station, though, you have to fire the engines in a series of burns to catch up to it. Because it's, it's in a higher orbit. And once you get up to it, you fly beneath it. And then you fly up in front of it. And then you slow down. So we're going together at really, really fast. But we, we dock at about, oh, gee whiz, 10, 10 feet per second or so, very, 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 very slowly, but you're going around the Earth together really fast. It's really like something out of a movie. Does it feel like that when you're there and you, presumably somebody's connecting, not somebody, oh, you, you know, techn- you're being connected somehow? To well, it's the, way more fun than a movie because it's real. <laughs> you know? it's, it's a real experience. And to be able to see the space station out your window for the very first time, you look at it and you go, that's not fake. You know, that, that is no kidding the real thing. At that point, is your heart just thumping really fast, thinking we've got to connect to that thing? Yeah, well, you, you've got to work hard. I, my responsibility on Rendezvous was to run the computers because we have computers that are running that measure the speed and the distance and everything. We have cameras that look at everything, and the commander's job is to fly the vehicle by hand and to dock with it. And so when things get really close and this big, huge thing is coming down in front of the windows right here, and it's like, you're getting it's right there. Left a bit, right a bit. Yeah, in, and he has, to, he has to get it just right. And then are you wearing, presumably you don't need to go outside at this no. point. No, Did we're still inside. Did you go outside at all? Yeah, I did three spacewalks. What does that feel like? Um, you hang on kind of tight for a little bit, you know, because it's a long way down. And then uh, what you realize the, lo- the harder you hang on, the more tired you'll get. And so you have to just hang on, just, you know, thumb and a forefinger, really just lightly. But you're not, you're not space walking, you're actually space crawling. That sounds kind of funny. But you just use your hands. You never use your feet except if you're going to put them in a foot restraint. If you have to move something, if you have to move a, um, you have a lot of torque on a, on a bolt, you, you push on, it's going to push back. And if you're not, your feet aren't 
held down, you're going to go around whatever you're pushing. So it's kind of interesting. What happens if you let go? If you let go, uh, hopefully you're tethered. We have a tether that's about, um, it runs, it's on a little reel, and so it kind of follows you around. And then if you let go, you'd actually, you had to push off from the space station, and you'd float out a bit, and then that little reel would pull, pull you back in, would reel you back in. If you're going to do work at a work site, then you have to put a big tether. You have a couple tethers on you. You hook the tether to it. So if you let go, you might float away a couple feet, maybe a meter at the most, and then pull yourself back in. If you really want to stay in position, there's another restraint you have that actually clamps onto a handrail, and you tighten it up. You don't, you don't, you're right there. What does it feel like looking at Earth from that great distance? Well, one spacewalk, I was looking over the back of the space station, and I was working, and I was really close to this structure I was not supposed to touch. This bright, bright white structure. As I look down the back side of it, the Bahamas uh, come into view. Speaking of the Bahamas, had recently had the major, major um, uh, damage from the hurricane. But to see them float into view and to see the tongue of the ocean in that area of the Bahamas while you're working, that's neat. Does it make you feel about the world differently? Because I always think that travel in itself helps Mm -hmm. broaden the mind because you just realize that everyone's the same everyone's trying black white whatever religion color creed everyone's trying to get on with their lives and traveling to other countries helps you see that but when you see earth from such a distance you you really do realize we are one we're just little human beings Mm -hmm. all trying to get on and it must be ridiculous to consider war or conflict well you feel really insignificant because you don't see the detail okay you know uh, when you travel across the country i rode a bike across the united states and, and I got to talk to people and the smells and the temperatures. So I, I, felt, I felt that presence of, of folks and got to meet people. And it was a fabulous experience. In space, though, you're so far disconnected from it. And so you, you, can't, you can't discern one from the other, which you say, you know, we're all one. At night, you see just the beauty of all of the cities and all of these connections between places. And I woke up. I took a nap one night on the flight deck. And, it, and it's hard to sleep because you're floating. But it's easy to take a nap. And so I took a nap on the flight deck, and I, I woke. I fell asleep in one spot, and I woke up in another, which is kind of cool. But I was looking out the window, and I went, ah, oh, it was night. Oh, that's the coast of England. There's London. There's the Pas de Calais. There's the coast of France and Paris, all in one right there. That was awesome. It's amazing that you can, you can see it yeah, that clearly. Yeah. You, can, you can see the city, well, just, you can yeah, see the coastline. Easy. You can, it's very easy to discern that. And the nice thing about it is, you know, uh, as a pilot, you're like, where am I? You look down and you think, and you you know recognize where places are. And you make that connection. So from space, it's in a much broader, more macro view. And, and then to be able to hear, all of a sudden you're over Paris, and pretty soon you're over the Middle East, and you're over the Indian Ocean, and pretty quick. It takes 20 minutes to go from Sydney, Australia, to Los Angeles in the space shuttle. That's just awesome. I yeah. mean, there's so much I want to ask you. I want to ask you about your bike ride. I want to ask you about uh, being the first Native American mm-hmm. astronaut. But uh, before, and also the film you're here uh, mm-hmm. talking about, you've made this incredible film. But before we do that, I want to ask how you get down from space. Um, you turn around and you slow down. Because you know, you're going so fast that now to come home, you turn the space shuttle around, you fire the engines, and actually slows you down. So now you fall back into the atmosphere. And this is all computer-controlled. You know, we, we, uh, you send commands. The commander can actually fly it by hand if he has to, or she has to. But then it's, uh, it's this long fall, about 40-minute fall, back to the Earth. 
and then you glide to a landing at the Kennedy Space Center or Edwards Air Force Base or one of those two places where you, you hope to go. Were you worried about coming down? Because it's almost like climbing a tree. You know, it's okay when you're on your way up, and then you realize it's like, oh, God, I've still got to get down. Oh, yes. If you worry about it, you shouldn't be there. You know, you know things can go wrong, so your, your worry is about making a mistake in that process. Your worry is not, not dying. Your fear is not to die. Your fear is that you're going to make a mistake. When stuff goes wrong, so you just, you're, you're focused, you're concentrated, and when you land, you're like, well, that was, that, you know, two weeks goes, for me, two weeks by really, really fast. Were you relieved to get down? No, no. Well, I was sick when I came back. I was, uh, I couldn't stand up. I was really nauseated. I uh, didn't like being back in 1G in gravity. It felt weird. Uh, my, uh, my, maybe it was a little dehydrated. Because you lose, you lose um, liquid in space. Your body thinks you have too much liquid because it's all floating. And so when you come back, you have a deficit, and so you try and replenish that fluid. And I, ha- I was the bartender. You know, I had, had these bags of drinks. They were... Um, I'm guessing they weren't cocktails. No, they weren't cocktails. No, they were like, like a, um, you know, it was a water with salt. You had salt tablets and water, so you absorb the water, not just drink the water. Uh, and so I was passing out all the stuff on the flight deck to the commander and the pilot and to me. I drank everything I was supposed to, but I probably was more dehydrated than I, than I thought. So when I came back, it was heart was racing and, and it was real uncomfortable for about a, about a week. Can you think of one particular moment? I love stories on this podcast. Can you think of one particular standout moment sure. of your time in space? Yeah, I was told there's a gentleman named Jerry Ross, uh, one of two astronauts that flown on the shuttle seven times. And Jerry was my boss. And he said, you know, at some point in your spacewalks, stop and sear the image into your mind. And, and do, not, do not take a picture of it. Take a picture with your mind. And uh, I did that on the end of the space station. And in the movie, they're recreating this, uh, this moment where I was on the end of the space station. For me, it was the, as a rock climber, it was the ultimate cliff. You know, it's a long ways down. Uh, but I was looking out across the, the limb of the Earth, over the edge of the Earth, out into the vastness of the universe, thinking, you know, what else is out there? You know, we, can't be, we cannot be alone in this vast universe that we that we inhabit a very small portion of. And so it was that moment that was nothing between me and whatever else is out there. And that was an OG whiz, goosebump, you know. Wow. What do you think is out there? There's, life has to be out there. I mean, the, the probability is so great, given the number of stars in the, in the visible universe, they say for every grain of sand on the surface of the Earth, there's a star in the visible universe. I mean, just go out and grab a handful of sand and, and try and contemplate that. And... Uh, you know, the probability is so great. As a mathematician, probability and statistics, you know, we can't be alone. You know, we, we can't be so special that it's just us. I, don't, I, cer- I certainly do not believe that we're alone in the universe. Do you think that there's anything watching us? Uh, if it's a long ways away. You know, the closest star is like 4.5 light years away. So that's 70,000 years at our current propulsion. If we were going there, it would take 70,000 years to get to the closest star. Um, you know, if anything's looking at us, I mean, it's a long ways away. It's just crazy, isn't it? It's crazy to contemplate. And as, you know, an astronaut, is it still crazy to contemplate? Well, yeah. Well, life on the Earth is pretty bizarre, right? We have, we have, we have things existing on the Earth in places they shouldn't, that we, we think they should not exist, but they do. They've, they've evolved to be like the depths of the ocean. Things thrive, the greatest pressures, no sunlight, and stuff thrives because of what's coming out of the Earth. Why can't that happen on Europa or Titan, you know, somewhere in our solar system, or around a planet and around another star. I think, yeah, if it happens here, it's got to happen out there. It's the same process, the same elements, the same type of things that we're made of exist out in those stars. I've so. been exposed recently to a trade of thought that says that life forms from other planets were here before us. What do you think about that? You know, I, there's a lot of people that, that have a lot of shows that, uh, you know, that 
that have these ideas that aliens came here and did stuff that we couldn't do. Ah, no. You know, and from my culture, from my, my heritage, I, had, I came from ancestors that built these remarkable structures by hand. And for someone to come and tell me, oh, they couldn't have done that, it had to be aliens, I take serious issue with that and like to have a long conversation about that. Well, this seems a great point to talk about your Native American sure. heritage because you're the first Native American astronaut mm -hmm. and... Tell us about your heritage. Well, I come from a tribe uh, which is now in Oklahoma. It used to be called Indian Territory. My tribe is a Chickasaw Nation. Uh, they originally came from somewhere in the southeast of the United States, um, before it was the United States. Kind of a mound culture. They built these, these remarkable uh, earthen mounds. From pretty much the eastern United States, there's a, there was a huge mound civilization, mound culture that existed long before European you know, Western civilization came to our shores. So my tribe was engineers. They were scientists. They were, you know, a lot of Native, Native peoples were just that. They were building structures when Europe was in the Dark Ages. And uh, they were very successful what they did. And things still stand today. My tribe, those, those mounds still exist. Um, and uh, so I like to think that I come from a, a ancestors who were remarkable scientists, engineers, persistent, and, uh, and able to survive when all the odds were against them at many, many times. So I think that's, you know, that's the, uh, what I bring from, from what my ancestors provided for me. And what was life growing up for you? Uh, I grew up, I was born in Oklahoma, uh, but I moved away early on. Uh, my heritage, and my, my Chickasaw heritage comes from my mother's side of the family. Uh, my great-grandmother's full-blood Chickasaw. So, but, you know, I've always been very proud of my heritage, but I grew up outside of, out of the tribe. I lived in Colorado. I grew up in the mountains, uh, Wyoming. I lived in Texas for a bit. Went back to Colorado for university. And so I've always been, I always liked being outside. I've always liked this idea of being in nature and being in the mountains. You know? So you have done an incredible amount of traveling. I don't really know where to start from that. Um, obviously, there was the big bike ride. Yeah. Uh, what were you doing before that? And then tell us about the bike sure. ride. Well, I, I flew in space in 2002. I was in the Navy for 13 years before I was, I was selected to NASA. I was at NASA for six years before I flew. So I had a variety of jobs. Um, I flew in space in 2002. Mission after mine was Columbia. I lost seven friends on Columbia. I lost three were my classmates. Uh, we didn't fly for about two and a half years. Uh, I was training for a space station mission. I was going to fly with two Russians. I was a commander, backup commander to a Russian guy, Pavel Vinogradov. Uh, I have a, uh, a little bone mass in my back, osteoporosis, and so I got disqualified from long duration. Could have flown the shuttle, but we weren't flying the shuttle, so I made a really tough decision to retire in 2005. Went to work for a commercial space company, the idea of flying, paying pastures in space. I went to a company work was owned by a millionaire, not a billionaire. Makes a difference. Uh, Pathetic, so, really. Yeah. Just a millionaire, isn't uh, yeah, it? Yeah, billionaires, Yeah, trillionaires, they call them. <laughs> um, hopped on a bicycle in 2007, or, no, 2008. Uh, celebrated my 50th birthday. I rode from Cape Flattery to Cape Canaveral. And along the way, I stopped and talked to uh, Native Americans at different reservations and, and schools, NASA schools as well to talk about my road to the astronaut corps. You know, when I, I didn't do really well in school my first year in college, in university. I wasn't motivated. I got kicked out, actually, for a little grade. But I went to work in the mountains. I worked for a surveying firm, and uh, I saw math and practice for the first time in my life. I worked for a guy that took an interest in me and decided, encouraged me to go back to school. So I did, and uh, went on to earn a degree in mathematics, and then uh, went on to join the Navy, and then uh, flew in the Navy as a test pilot. Oh, just had this kind of interesting career that took me along, but by the time I was 50 and this idea of riding the bike to tell that story, uh, hopefully make the difference in the lives of students, that you know, if this is something you want to pursue, if you have a, a desire to do something that may be out of the realm of what you think is possible, well, it's not, not necessarily true. 
you can do it. But but certain people help you in your life and, and encourage you, make a difference. And you now work as a motivational speaker, and I can see where that journey has. You know, you experienced that. You know, flunking out of sure. college and actually turning it around because. Yeah. Of, of one person, one situation. You know, it's incredible how things like that can turn your whole life around. Sure. Yeah, I had one young lady stop me once in Phoenix, Arizona. I was on an elevator, and she goes, you're John Harrington. And that does not happen to me. You know, people don't recognize, recognize me. But she said, I, I met you when I was 12 years old, and I didn't realize that I could be an engineer until I met you. And she says, I want to thank you because I'm now an engineer with the city of San Francisco as a uh, civil engineer. I always wow. say that if you can't if you can't see it growing up, you know whether that's because you're in a, in poverty, living in a certain area, sure. living with a certain culture that aren't you know as prevalent on TV or in the industries you want to be in. If you can't see it, you don't know you can be it. Right. Yeah. Even if you want to be it, sure. You, you can't see a path to get there. Well, I grew up. I grew up in the '60s and the '70s. I watched astronauts on TV, but I didn't see any of them that looked like me. And so, you know, I dreamed about being an astronaut, but I never thought I could pursue it until much later in my career when I was doing the same thing those guys had done. I was in the exact same school, same test pilot school, doing the exact same thing. And so the reality is, yeah, I can do this, but if you don't apply, you won't be one, you know. So I, I, I went down that path, you know, later in life, yeah. It's, it's, so many kids dream about being an astronaut, but... Yeah. I don't think they actually dream they can actually be an astronaut. It's almost like Father Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. You know, it's one of those sort of like, ridiculous. But you actually, anyone listening to this, anyone's children can can be an astronaut. Sure. You just have to know that path and follow it. Yeah, and, and do and do. Uh, I like to say, do the very best you can do. And if it leads you down that path to doing something you dream about, that's fabulous. But I, I know folks that have gone down that path and did not become astronauts. And they felt, from what I can tell, they felt really disappointed in it, obviously. But at the same time, they had fabulous careers. And so this idea is do something you love to do. Do something to get paid to do something you love to do. Absolutely. It's like fabulous. the people that love playing football and they get so far, but they're never going to be the rock star footballer yeah. or the musician is never yeah. going to have a one, number one single, but they might be earning a living out of making music. It's sure. exactly the same thing, isn't sure. it? So you're here in the UK at the moment Yay. because you're and, and doing a, a world tour by the sounds of it. You're flitting around all over the place. <laughs> Talking about the film, tell me about your film. Sure. Well, about a year ago, I was uh, I received a call from a group named uh, McGillivray Freeman Films. They do IMAX movies, giant screen films. And they were uh, interested, if I was interested, in, uh, in pursuing a um, being a talent with a young lady named Ariel Tweedo. Ariel is a, uh, a Nupiak, uh, Inuit, an Eskimo from Alaska who's been on a TV show called Flying Wild Alaska. And they asked if we'd be interested in uh, going across the country and going to places that were kind of off the beaten path. Oh, yeah, sign me up. It was great. It was a fabulous experience. So uh, we, we travel across the country going to places and, and filming places and not just talking about the beauty of the place but talking about the cultural aspect of the place, talking about something unique to that area that folks may not know, have known about. And so we've gone from the West Coast to the East Coast. We've gone New York from north, from the Finger Lakes of New York, down to Shiprock, Arizona. Uh, we've been in the route, I've driven a Corvette down Route 66. So this has been a really fabulous experience. What has been the most surprising thing that you've discovered about America? Ah, uh, the most surprising thing? Well, I think when I rode the bike across the country, I experienced meeting people. I experienced the, the heat and the cold, the snow, the lightning, all that. And you really appreciate just the folks you meet along the way. That's the neat part about it is that you, you may not be familiar with the spot, but you stop and talk to somebody that is and say, hey, where, where should I go? And they, they point you point in that direction. So that's the one thing I, that I found is that 
you know, talk to the folks that are there, you know, and you, you'll learn a lot about something you had no idea about before. That's the thing about the vastness of America, isn't it? I mean, people take the, the piss out of Americans, a great proportion, not having passports. But when you've got such vastness of landscape and people and geographical spread, everything is there. But not everything, you know. And it's, there's, there's so many beautiful things to do. But the idea is to get folks around as many places as you can. So what we want to do in the United States is show folks these kind of places that are off the beaten path that we may appreciate because we live there. But folks that have never been there, they had no idea that it was there. So they actually came and filmed up my, my house in central Idaho. And the central Idaho is this absolutely gorgeous mountainous area that's you know, wilderness on both sides of my house you know, where I live. In an airplane, it's just a hop, skip, and a jump. And I can fly my plane back in there. Uh, You've got your own plane? i got a small plane, Have yeah. I, I did that when I retired. I, I had to keep flying. Uh, two weeks ago, I was rowing a boat, uh, a rubber raft, on the lower Salmon River in Idaho with a good friend of mine who's an outfitter. And we were taking clients down, you know, down the Lower Salmon in this absolutely gorgeous uh, canyon. I get to live there, you know. And then it's neat to be able to share that with people. You do get to live there, which is amazing. But because you've got this incredible backstory and lifestyle, you also get to go to these wonderful places Mm -hmm. around the world. Yeah. I get to see a lot of people and, and experience different cultures and get an appreciation for what other people have. Um, I think that's one of the neatest things about me when I was in the Navy. I got to go to f- places I never dreamed I would get to go to. And I got to see them and talk to people that were from there. And that gives you an appreciation for you're just not that special where you are. Everybody else has a story. And that's the neat thing about traveling is you get to learn those stories. And you get to take that home with you. Which is why travel helps, yeah. as we were saying before, with you know, prejudice and mm-hmm. you know, making us all feel a little bit more connected. We, more people need to do it. You know, we, the United States is a gorgeous place, a lot of fabulous things. I would love my family uh, to get out and be able to see that. My, my folks lived overseas. My mom and dad lived in Morocco before. My brother was in West Africa. Uh, my sister, when she was little, was over there as well. And so they've had a chance to, you know, to experience living outside the United States. I want my grandkids to be able to do that. I want my grandkids to experience what it's like to go to Europe, what it's like to go to Africa, what it's like to go to South America. Those are places, some places I haven't been, but I still want to go. Yeah. What we were talking about earlier about you can't be something or do something if you don't see it. Sure. So, but a lot of the time it's about money, isn't it? Yeah. Travel is expensive. It's expensive. But there are ways of doing it, even if you don't come from a rich family. I certainly don't come from sure. a rich family. I don't know about your background. Your parents sound like you've, Same. you've traveled. There are ways of doing it. If you do have those people around you that are traveling out of the, the village or the state or the, mm-hmm. the, the country, um, you know, there are ways of doing it, of traveling, of saving up, of going into the Navy. Sure. You just have to find something that inspires you to, to want to work hard to do it. Yeah, riding a bike, the fuel is your food. You know, you're not driving a car. And so you get up every morning and you, you go as far as you can, as far as you want to, and you pick those little places and you meet the people along the way. You may, you may pitch a tent in a, in a city park because, you know, if you're going to stay in a hotel, if you have the money, you don't. You, you pitch your tent in the park. Next morning I dust the ice off my tent and it's in the fog. And, and uh, this is in Colorado. You know, I pedal out of the fog into this beautiful sunshine near Rocky Mountain National Park. And then it gets cloudy and then it starts to rain and then it snows and it lightnings, and it sleets. So I had this incredible uh, sensory uh, experience in these bunch of different seasons, and it was fabulous. I was on a bike. I've had a lot of people, not a lot of people, I've had a few other people, adventurers, uh, you know, like yourself on the podcast, that have said they've just got their bike and, and yeah. gone, you know. And I think that's, it's just 
so simple yet so terrifying and and you can just do it there's nothing to stop you obviously social constraints sure. and a little bit of cash you know to to keep you going but there's nothing from stopping anyone from just getting on a bike right now and going or walking sure. and, and just keeping and keeping on going yeah yeah there's a uh I live in a place where there's a, it's called the Trans-America Route. And so people go from Astoria, Oregon to go out to the East Coast. They actually have a race. And so in the summer, I see these folks racing across the country. And sometimes they're just folks that they're fully loaded bikes. And they're just cranking down the... And I stop and I'll talk to them because I did it. And I want to hear their story. And people, it's just fun. You start sharing the stories. And maybe somebody from Germany. And maybe somebody from Belgium. And maybe somebody... Um, you know, I met a guy... I met a guy in Montana who was peddling his Japanese pedaling from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, to Tierra del Fuego, Argentina. I met him in Montana. He'd already pedaled farther in his bike ride than I was going to do my entire bike ride. And that was fun. So when you are there in the wilderness where you live, mm-hmm. and you know, you, it sounds like you're close to some very interesting places and people pass through, do you ever look up at the sky and think, oh, I went there? Well, yeah, sometimes I woke up, we were on the river, and uh, I was sleeping on my boat. And we look up, you see the Milky Way, you know, floating overhead. You know, as we rotate underneath the Milky Way, it moves across the sky. And then I had a, have a little, have the app. And even though I was in the wilderness, my app still had the forecast for when the space station would come over. And I look down the canyon, and I see the space station come out of the one side of the mountain, cross the canyon, and pop over the other side. And you go, yeah, I know those guys. That's you fun. wave. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What travel, it's very difficult to, uh, to sort of to narrow it down because you've got so many travel stories, but what travel stories have I missed? What should I ask you? Oh, boy. I have a very good friend, a uh, French test pilot named um, Philippe, uh, Philippe Perrin. Um, I'm the godfather to his second daughter, and they live in, uh, he lives in Toulouse, France. He's a, a test pilot for Airbus. He was one of my classmates in the astronaut uh, class, and he, is, he has a place in southern France uh, in the Gorge de Tarn, on the Tarn River, a place called Castelbuc, and it's this gorgeous little teeny village at the base of a medieval castle. And I got to go there for his uh, daughter's, um, for, for baptism. And uh, that was one of the most fabulous trips I've ever had, is to go down to the, and to be there with people whose history is there, and to see that. That's one of, most, my, one of my favorite trips, yeah. You said you weren't scared in space, because you're trained not to be scared. Where in the world have you felt afraid? Oh, boy. Um, I used to be stationed in Alaska, and we used to do search and rescue missions off of the island. We were, we were lost in a search and rescue mission off of, uh, oh, we were flying off the Soviet Union, and uh, we were pulled off our mission to go search for a Korean freighter that was sinking in a, uh, in a hurricane-force winds. And I'm down at 300 feet at night getting the beat out of me uh, in the airplane. It was just incredibly bumpy, but we found the ship. And, you know, you're thinking if something happened, we'd be down and no one would know whatever happened to us. And so be, you're so focused on your job, you know, that you start thinking about the stuff that could go bad. Same thing about being in the shuttle is that you don't focus on that. But I did have a one time where uh, I had a malfunction with the airplane. And uh, there's a chance that the, it was very scary that uh, the, the plane I flew had a problem years ago where the wings would fall off. <laughs> they fixed it. That's, that's quite but, a problem. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, but it happened on a flight, uh, on a search and rescue again, where something happened that was really strange, and we had this really weird oscillation in the airplane. And it turns out we had these cracks in the wings we didn't know about until, until after we came back. But it could have been in the middle of you know, the Arctic, um, not the Arctic Ocean, but uh, the Gulf of Alaska, where something could have happened, we would have disappeared and no one ever, no one happened to us. That would be a cold and nasty death. Cold, yeah, terrible. So where have you felt happiest in the world? Hmm, boy, 
play with my grandson, and uh, we have a little segways, little two wheel segways, and where I where I live, and nice little neighborhood, well in the mountains. It's a small community, and my grandson, I get on the segways and go zipping around, walking my dog. So that's I'm really happy being with, being with my grandson, my kids, um, in a place that I love, living in the mountains, going skiing. I love to ski, love snow skiing, that ride sounds- my bike, yeah. Sounds absolutely perfect. I have one last question for you, and my mm-hmm. question is always about music, because I think that music and travel, I don't know about space travel, <laughs> it's going to be, uh, for me, it'll be uh, uh, you know, space odyssey, um, but uh, I always think that music and travel go hand in hand. Sure. If you had to choose one song that reminds you of a memorable oh time <coughs> or place of travel, what would that song be? There's a, uh, there's a really neat song by Willie Nelson, and it's a... a it's a African group, um, still traveling to me. I think is the name of it. And I played this once as part of a, a slideshow that I did for um, my bike ride across the country. And it's you know still moving to me. And it's this got this. I'm still moving, and I'm still going down the road. And and I'd love to use a song. It's one I don't have permission to use a song, so I don't use it. But it's got this uh, really beautiful rhythm to it. And as Willie Nelson's talking about you know. You're moving on, going on down the road, and the next thing you get to see. And uh, I think it's still moving to me, and it's off a Putumayu album. Boy, I wish I knew it. It's still moving to me, I think, is the name of it. Well, I don't have permission to use it either, but we'll have to uh, to pick it it. up and and think of it in our imaginations when we think about your journey. Thank you so much for coming on the Big Travel Podcast. Oh, this is fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, John, for being such an inspiration. Coming up in the next few episodes, we have a famous Burmese chef, a famous explorer and his wife, and I'm possibly introducing a review section to the podcast, so do watch this space. 